You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. along with Dr. Esteban. Retired Marconi. Yes. And we are very excited to be here with you today because today we are actually going to talk about our book, um, Managing Your Your Band, 7th Edition, written, conceived originally by Dr. Esteban Marconi. Self-promoting. This is ridiculous. This is, we've never done this before. We put out a 6th edition 25 years ago and then um, here we go with uh, edition number seven. So very excited about it. So thank you for listening. We're going to love this. It's going to be pure comedy. And we are not going to host the show so much. We're going to in- be interviewed by the one and only Steve Corbin, Esteban Corbin, who is the Senior VP of Sales, Council, and Culture. At, it's at WIA, right? Yes. At WIA, Warner Electra Atlantic. So there we go. Yes. Consider WIA, Warner Electric Atlantic, like the old days, or you just say it WIA and it's like the acronym doesn't matter. No, it still stands for something. Now that Electra is back in the fold and they, uh, you know, reestablished Electra a few years ago yeah. under the Atlantic uh, umbrella, it's, uh, you know, it's back to WIA, even though it's a vastly different uh, distribution company today, as you guys Very- know. Yeah, very different from the, uh, we'll call it the 80s or the 90s. But but before we get into that, uh, Saban Marconi, we should do some, uh, some give some thanks real quick, shouldn't we? Yes, some thank yous. Yes, so we will give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management, with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, Tina Like, Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine helps professionals all over the world manage their investments, plan for their retirement. When someone like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think of the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Steve Corbin, are you ready for this? I'm ready for it. I really am. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, if people could see your facial expressions as you did the promos, I think there's some value in that at some point. I just wanted to start off by saying to any to the listeners that this book, the seventh edition, is just r- remarkable. Even though that the title of the book is Managing Your Band, uh, my point of view this is a very good book for a lot of people in different facets of the music industry because you cover so many topics, even though the centerpiece is about managing your band. Let's just start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll through because you've got about you know 12 chapters here, and I know we've got a limited amount of time, so I'm going to make sure I want to try to get through as many of, uh, many of these chapters as possible. And really starting with with the the beginning of the book in terms of 
you really start to lay it out about how major music companies are shifting and evolving, which you really dive into um, under the modern entertainment company in the back. So from your perspective, do you think the shifting and evolving is good for the artist overall and for a manager, whether it's a DYI manager or a, a, a manager of note like an Irving Azov? It's, a, it's an interesting question coming from that end, because if I go back all the way to um, edition one and look at what I did there and how the industry was so, um, it was, uh, it wasn't more complex, but there were more players on the, on the highest level. And now today we have with the shifting, we have back to basically the big three and a bunch of, thanks to technology, a bunch of indies that are even artist run that can make a go at it much easier than in the beginning when I wrote this in around 1995 or whenever that was. Not that it's easier, but it's easier in terms of doing it because thanks to the technology of the internet. So I think on one hand, the artist gained something here by sort of skipping what's known as the gatekeepers and putting the music out there, whether it be in one of the uh, streaming services that offer non-signed artists the ability to have their music listened to, or it is an artist that creates sort of a company then puts it up for sale or puts it up for distribution through one of the major labels. Yep. Yep. Well, you have, you cite an example, you take Bonnie Raitt, who's been around for a long time, signed to a major label back in the day, and you use her uh, in the book as an example of an artist that's on her own in terms of owning her rights, uh, you know, working with outside companies like Fred Crochelle's company and things of that sort. So you illustrate in the book, how you can go about and do this on your own as, and again, she's got the benefit of being around for a long time with an established fan base mm -hmm. versus someone that's, that's starting off, which, you know, going back to the book itself, it really appeals to both sides, right? You, you have many, many examples of artists that are already proven and how they can do it. And then you really also give some great guidance and great advice uh, to an artist and or a manager that's uh, that's starting out. Can I can I go go back to your question? Sure. Um, because Absolutely. I think, um, what has changed considerably, even I would say in the last three or four years, is is from label services. And I think um, Marconi mentioned indies, and and where you're talking, you're also talking about these different tiers of distribution. You have anybody can get distribution of their song now. Just go to an aggregator, go to TuneCore. Uh, CD Baby, um, there are others, and, and you can have your music out there. And the, the issue there is, wow, it's so easy to have worldwide distribution now for very little money, but the issue is everybody can do it. And so there's a ton of noise out there, just like with social media. So, but if you're able to break through a little bit and have a good plan and, and do real good with shows and social media and all that, you can get to maybe these tier two distributors like an Empire or a Symphonic um, uh, which offers uh, label services. They, they will have people who can do some pitching. They have relationships with uh, editorial playlists at Spotify or Apple or YouTube Music. They can provide um, some entree into higher level areas at TikTok or Instagram, things like that. So the Empire example is they, they can offer different label services. And label services are everything from, from digital to uh, obviously distribution, but they ha they have radio if you needed radio. And then the majors have ADA or they have Virgin Music or um, InGrooves. Sony has The Orchard. They, they're buying AWOL specifically to get into this market. So the whole indie market and getting into the label services is better because managers and artists are doing a lot more artist development than 20 years ago when a, a lot of labels would take a chance on an artist. Now labels because they can see how artists are doing with their socials, if it's their streams on, on Spotify or YouTube, 
they can wait and they can let the artists do a lot of that development and then jump in with a bigger advance. But until then, a lot of the artist development is that's what a lot of what we're talking about is done by artist manager and then maybe one of those uh, middle tier level distributors that's offering different label services. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you illustrated that throughout the book. And I think you had a quote from, um, from Peter Mensch from Q Prime about the fact that Q Prime can do and outsource, whether it's a, pub, a publicity company um, or obviously from the touring perspective and all that. So that's, you know, again, you know, Q Prime works with, you know, big acts like Metallica, but they also have some young developing artists as, as well. Under the personal management front, I think you really, uh, really did a great job of really talking and talking about the team's aspect that needs to be built whether it's the personal management side, you illustrate what, the, what a studio team would look like for recording purposes and what the tour team would look like in terms of an artist touring, which um, I think this part was really designed for that up and coming manager that's trying to understand the different revenue streams and how all this works. Um, so tell me, the, the thought process by splitting it up into these three distinct groups came from, came from what? Well, I guess I always had um, this um, idea that the artists really didn't know who the team should be. And when, you were, when I saw examples of artists giving their team, they would put in things like the concert promoter, and they put in the um, record producer sort of as their daily daily, uh, daily um, office, if you will, that would help their entire uh, career. So I wanted to separate um, just when they should turn their attention to another team or a team or different people in terms of what project they are involved with at that specific time. So that's why I did it, and Dave can jump in, but I did it to stop some confusion that I noticed that uh, new artists really didn't know uh, who, mm-hmm. you know, is their team on a daily basis. And for instance, if we go back to PR and media and so on, in the old days, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, uh, many times the PR was pers- person was hired for tours and then sort of let go or put on just retainer. And today it's a 24 seven job uh, in terms of keeping the artist in the right media and keeping the artist as a, um, you know, spinning it no matter what they do, Mm -hmm. make it seem like they're doing something for themselves. That's true. Well, I think it, again, going back to what you said about technology, you know, years ago, you pretty much had, you had radio and you had uh, the print media and those were, and a little bit of television with late night TV and what have you, those were really your main vehicles in terms of, of doing publicity. And nowadays with all the social media aspects to it, it is a 24 seven, you know, much like the news, it's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a 24 seven news cycle. That's very, very true. Well, a lot of what's going on is uh, we're seeing these major paradigm shifts. You have a lot of uh, younger artists coming up. You know, they might be 19, 20, 21. And I still think that the music industry is built around the concept of what it used to be in the 80s and the 90s. People want the, the record deal. If people want to go into the music business. They want to be in A&R. There are these like... Um, I don't want to call them myths, but, but, but things that people have just always wanted to do because I guess maybe that's all they know. And I think um, when you talk about the teams, one team in there, you mentioned the studio team, you can look at that graph that's in the book and almost you can say that's, that's traditionally what it has been because we have the artist and we have the producer and we have the engineer and maybe there's a, a conductor or a ranger, then there are the session musicians or that's the old way. That's, that's, you know, the Beach Boys making um, pet sounds. There's also the other side of you might be everything, you know, might be one person with a computer in your bedroom, you know, so, and you might not have a manager yet until you get signed and the label might connect you with one or two people to interview to be your manager, you know? Um, So it's, 
I think everything in the industry now is uh, there's no, this is how it's done. It's, this is how it could be done, but it could be done this way or that way or that way. So all these teams, but I would say on the touring side, the way it's been is kind of the way it still is. Maybe you add a COVID uh, compliance officer, but you get bigger and bigger, you need a bigger and bigger team. But the general live is what it is, definitely studio side. Um, it, it, it's smaller or larger. And then even with the artist team on the uh, overall artist team, you know, that you still need an attorney, you still need a manager. You need somebody who's looking at data. You need somebody who's doing social media with you. So you're either outsourcing that or you're doing it or with your manager, but you definitely need data and analytics are huge. And that's a huge thing that was not in the traditional team five, six, seven years ago. You and I had a great discussion, Steve, maybe it was a year ago. I was in your office right before we we had uh, uh, COVID. And we were talking about in the old days when you and I were both the polygram and we were in sales, you're selling physical product. And you're basing what are returns going to be? We just didn't, you kind of guessed, and there were probably some, some prehistoric models. But I remember you telling me you knew exactly what would be shipped into where because you have all this, had all this data now. That's right. That is right. That is absolutely correct. It's such a data-driven you know, industry today. Not that data didn't exist many, many years ago, but it was much more... Um, simpler, I would say back in the day, even going back to my retail days, we used to inventory the store. It was with, you know, computer sheets and you did everything on a, with a pencil and you still tried to kind of figure out, Hey, I need to order another, you know, 20 copies of this or a hundred copies of that. But today it's really, really sitting there right at your fingertips. And again, going back to the teams, the, the beauty of it is even using the studio example is someone could, when they buy the book, if you're an artist, if you're a manager, you can sit there and say, you know, on the studio side, as you said very well a few minutes ago, I can do all this in my bedroom. I don't need a producer. I don't need to go to, you know, uh, to Electric Ladyland to do this record. I'm going to do it here because let's don't get lost on the fact that true artist development, you know, sometimes takes several songs, several albums. And it's not just if you want to have a career, it's not just about you know, having, having that one hit. Yeah, um, I, call, I call that the uh, Renaissance musician today. Because the mm-hmm. Renaissance musician is someone who just doesn't only play saxophone or doesn't only play violin or guitar, whatever, but the Renaissance person could actually do the graphics and do um, all the producing and all the playing of every instrument with the help of the computer. When I was a dean uh, about 10 years ago, when I was a dean, I was trying to create that sort of a a degree for the College of Arts and Communication, which I was dean of for two years. And the idea that it wouldn't be that one department necessarily, they'd have to pass the auditions or they'd have to pass the portfolio review of that specific department, but it was someone that they looked at as an entire package that really wanted to continue to learn the entire package. And there's very few few schools that that actually do that. Uh, And just thinking back, you know, why do, why all of these, especially British musicians, why were they art majors? They were all from an art school. He was from an art school. And the idea being there is they had the freedom at the, in an art school, you know, in music to get a degree and some even jazz today to get a degree you sort of have to replicate you have to play a mozart um sonata or you have to be like charlie park or whatever but it's a it's a reproduction degree and it doesn't allow anything except if you're in composition to do something new whereas there's not i don't think there's another degree on campus especially in the arts that you can get out that way. If you are in the art school, you do two years of foundation, then you don't get out by repainting the Mona Lisa. Right, you right. know, exactly. They have to create something in their head. But in the music, it's, a, it's really reprodu- reproduction. And it's very much uh, ingrained in that. And I think you hit the nail on the head that we look at musicians today, as Dave's saying, that can do just about all of the album if they wanted to, but of course they have a great producer 
uh, Timbaland and someone like that, you know, then you've got a leg on, on the next, um, would be really basically the next gatekeeper. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. They could start off on their own and as they get better, because the more they're working at their craft, the better they're going to be. Which, which leads me into very early in the book, you started, you know, you started and talked about the creative process, you know, very early in the book. Mm-hmm. So what, wh- why did you guys des- decide to start there? You know, after you've, after you laid out the team's aspect of it, you, you went right into the creative process. And I have two questions about that. Why? And then the second part of it is, do you think this will help managers or should managers be identifying talent and should they be nurturing the creative process mm-hmm. in terms of from the management perspective? Mm-hmm. So, A, you know, why did you guys start there on the creative process, which I think is excellent? And then again, um, do managers, should they be identifying talent and should they be nurturing the creative process or do they just let the artist do what they want to do? Um, that's a good question too. Uh, I had that chapter further back in the book and I found when I was getting reviews before even Dave came aboard for six and seven, that people would always say, not always say, but people who really analyze the book would say in that chapter on, uh, feeding the, the creative and so on, care and feeding of the creative was an excellent chapter. And we don't find that anywhere else. And I got very involved with this idea of people such as a manager should understand right away that the artist has, uh, the artist is sort of an enigma in terms of their daily or just their existence in general, is that number one, they're basically a product if they get involved in the industry chain. And secondly, that they have to separate themselves from being a product or the artist or front stage from the backstage of going home and being a normal person and so on. And that the manager has to understand that in terms of being, I guess, a psychologist, but understand that the artist is going through that sort of metamorphosis every time they're on stage and then they're, you know, then they're off stage. So I thought that if the manager understands that fairly early, that they could then go on and not only nurture the product, but also the process of being a man, uh, an artist 24 seven. Right, right. And it's particularly important as we talked about a little earlier, if the artist is gonna do everything themselves, you know, write the songs, record the songs, produce the songs, all the way down to mastering, because a lot of you've got software tools that allow artists to do that 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 manager should be that voice, if you will, to not only act as a, um, what I call a backdoor producer, where they're just trying to make sure that their artist does the best performance uh, possible. So that, that's fantastic. And, it, and we oftentimes in the business say, everything starts with the creative, everything. Yeah. You, can't, you can't do anything else until you've had this piece of art or music created to do yeah. that. So excellent, excellent chapter. And I'm glad it makes all the sense in the world to, uh, to have moved that up in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, would also, I, could, yes. I would also add, um, we were fortunate enough to have a long conversation with Scooter Braun about three, four years ago. And he was talking about the Amy Winehouse documentary that came out. And in that documentary, um, she was on her second manager at that point. And mm-hmm. she was very much uh, a drug addict at that point. She'd had a bad boyfriend, I believe. She got hooked on heroin. And um, the manager said, it was not my position to stop her from harming herself. It was only my position to, uh, to help her with her career. And Scooter's, I'm paraphrasing, his quote basically was, I wanted to reach into the screen and choke that guy to death because that's completely wrong. It is a manager's job. Number one, to shield the artist from a lot of the businessy stuff so that they can be creative, but also sometimes to protect them from themselves. Who else is going to do it? You know, you're, you're, you're human beings and you need to be there to support the human being who you are managing. 
And you can't, just because they're doing drugs, you can't say keep doing drugs because you're coming. You're coming up with some great songs. I love this. Yeah, do more LSD. Do more heroin. You can't mm-hmm. do that. There, there's a, there are ethics. There are morale, morale, morals, morals to that. Yes. And um, yes. so that's that's part of it as well. You sometimes you a manager. You need to be that psychologist. You need to be that parent. Uh, you need to be that uh, truant officer, but you need to stop them from harming themselves. And maybe, right. but you have to at least try, you know? Yep. Yep. It's like being a, a, a coach. You're, you're actually a coach in terms of working with your artists and you have to have a certain degree of empathy, integrity. The best managers have all those skill sets in addition to, you know, running the artist business, the business part of, uh, of the music industry. Definitely. Agree. I, I just read this morning, um, Sony has created uh, a new uh, vice president of the le- at the whatever level, but vice president of business affairs to handle not only a bigger, a better transparency for the artist in terms of the contract and et cetera, but also uh, for the artist's well-being. And that they are verbally, anyway, saying that they created an office now to handle the things that we're talking about, and that was something the industry always ignored. Uh, you know, that's country. true. That is uh, true. Although I will say, although I will say, Music Cares really does a good yeah. job of looking out for the artists when it comes to their mental health and other issues like that. Uh, you know, they raise a lot of money every year when they have that Music Cares Person of the Year. Right. And uh, just going back to my you know, label days, we had, you know, a couple of artists that were, you know, in trouble and we stepped in as the label, not necessarily, we weren't management, but we really uh, worked with Music Cares to uh, really facilitate uh, this artist going away uh, for, to rehab for a certain, you know, period of time. Again, you know, it's empathetic, you know, was it a good business decision? At the end of the day, you could say yes, because we, you know, needed this artist around. They were performing at a high level, but the same token, we felt it was important for us to um, really step in and, and, and really help out there. So it goes back to the, the, the coaching part. Um, let me move on to agreements. I thought that was an excellent chapter uh, in the book. Uh, my question is, why can't I just, why can't we just do handshake agreements and just say, hey, look, you know, I'll, you know, I'll charge you this, you charge that and shake, shake hands and go about your business. Um, so can you just can you just get into why are agreements important? And the second question will be, can, uh, can a manager, going back to managing your bank, can they just create their own you know, document or agreement on their own? Why are agreements, let's start with that. Why are agreements important? Go ahead, Dave, you're in the middle of it. Well, um... The handshake is good, but the best thing probably, the, the issue with agreements when you're talking, especially when you're talking about independent artists. And I also want to say, by the way, in terms of independent artists, I read somewhere just this week, and I took issue with it, with the concept of the unsigned artists, um, calling an independent artist unsigned. I think that's under the assumption now that every artist wants to become a signed artist to a major label. And I think we're not there anymore. So I think calling them independent artists or indie artists, I think that's the way to call them now. But um, for the indie artists, especially the up and coming indie artists, they don't have a lot of money. And so if you have very little revenue coming in, it's a, a handshake is probably okay because there's nothing to fight over because there's nothing happening, you know, and, and if do I spend $500, $750 for an attorney to have this um, agreement put together between myself and a manager, um, I can do it. But now there's $750 I can't use to record or to spend on marketing and things like that. So it's the opportunity cost of what do I do with this money? And we talk about that a few times in that uh, legal aspects chapter, because there are a number of times where you should have an attorney and spend the money, but there are a number of times you probably don't have to have an attorney because the ramifications of, of signing a deal and maybe it going south aren't that, aren't that big. There's not a lot of risk to signing a deal. If I have a show tonight and the venue wants me to sign something, I can probably sign it and I'm going to be okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are times the handshake can work to a degree, but we, uh, we interviewed, uh, suddenly forget his name, but the guy who had been the manager for My Chemical Romance, um, they fired him. They were at height of success and they let him go and they never had a, a, an official agreement, but they did have some sort of deal memo-y type things. They had some emails that talked about right. it. So he was able to save himself um, a lot of heartache and a lot of money by referring back to that. And they were able, able to come to a settlement in terms of like a sunset clause money that he could still earn, um, even though he's no longer actively managing that. So there's nothing wrong at some point with coming up with even just a basic deal memo of just a one sheet. We agree on these things and eventually we can go a little bit further as we grow. And there's something to even argue about should we come to loggerheads. Do you agree with that, Dr. Esteban? Yeah, I think, I, you know, you're absolutely correct. And there are, you know, there are people that have never had a contract that we understand never had a contract and having no problems. Uh, but sure, when the risk is low, there's no reason to create all these uh, scary legal clauses for the for the artist. And you also break down how lawyers, when you hire a lawyer, how they get paid, whether it's a retainer, whether it's project based and all that. Again, you're laying out the, the foundation for a manager buying the book and really kind of understanding. And, and it's good for the artist too, to really kind of understand uh, those pieces of, of the business. That's for sure. It might also be important for people to understand what a lawyer will do for you because uh, you have different types of attorneys. There's the transactional attorney who will just be the person who is representing that, that contract. And so um, I, let's say you're a lawyer, Steve Corbin, um, and I'm managing Steve Marconi. Um, you and I might be talking all the time about deals, but suddenly because you're representing Steve and I'm the person who knows more about this than Steve Marconi, so you and I are talking all the time, then it gets to the point where Steve and I need to get an agreement because I'm his manager. You can't You technically should not represent both of us because of the conflict of interest. So you're going to continue representing Correct. him. I will either... Um, get my own lawyer or handle it myself um, and under the assumption that we're doing all that kind of thing. But that's, you would be the transactional attorney. If um, Steve Marconi is sued for copyright infringement or something like that, then we have the litigation attorney because we're actually going to court or we're trying to either uh, go after somebody or somebody's going up to us. Um, and then there's another type of attorney. In, uh, I, I have been finding that attorneys in general don't pitch music to labels anymore. That used to happen a lot. It doesn't happen as much. However, we were approached by an attorney a week ago with one of the artists who I manage, who basically said for $7,500, I will pitch your music to labels. Um, to which I said, oh yeah, because we just have $7,500 laying around for you. <laughs> um, not guarantee a thing to us, but just tell us you're going to pitch. And I, there's no, who's what, who's the watchdog watching you do whatever you're going to do, you know? So right, right. Um, that's still, so there's always the shady, almost ambulance chaser type. And I'm not giving this person's name out. So, um, but to me, that's almost kind of a scammy kind of thing. Cause if you really believe in this artist and you're a lawyer, pitch it, and then you can get money on the back end if you get signed and we're successful. So from upfront money yeah. like that, and there are managers who want upfront money also, um, I would, tend to shy away from those people because there's no risk reward for them. They're getting everything in advance and it's not fair to the artist or anybody else. Well, it goes back to you can, you, the, an artist and or a manager because of your book can go through the book and understand the pitfalls about that. And, you know, assuming they're reasonably intelligent and reasonably understand the book, they would sit there and say, that's a red flag. I see it. No, I'm not paying you one penny in an advance. First of all, I don't have the money to do it. Right. And second of all, if you want to charge me $7,500, does that include you representing me for the $7,500 to write up the agreement? Should you pitch it? And should the label become interested in it? You know, one of the two, but the book really lays out the, the, the risk and the rewards of, of having good legal uh, representation. Alan Grubman will, will represent you and the label 
That's a, that's a joke, but he's done it many times. Yeah, like Alan Grubman will say, he'll he'll say, if there's no conflict, there's no right. upside for anybody. So, <laughs> you're right. right. A guy like Grubman historically would represent Billy Joel and would represent uh, Columbia Records. So, yeah. Um, you, you spent some time talking about uh, sync licensing and that whole aspect of it, which it, in my opinion, I think for an artist or even a manager, that can be overwhelming to understand the whole aspect of, of, of sync in terms of whether it's on the publishing side, the recorded music side of it, um, having to negotiate that part of it. But you lay that out very, very nicely in the book to give a breakdown about how that works. Can you elaborate just a bit, touch on that a, a bit, please? Sync is interesting, and I actually just worked on a sync deal um, a, a few weeks ago. And it's, it's important to know for people to understand that every time they hear a song, to every song, there are two parts to the song. There's the recording uh, that you hear, and there's also the underlying composition. And so when somebody, a movie studio, uh, Apple for a TV commercial, when they want to license a particular song to use in that commercial, um, the type of license they need is called a synchronization license and everybody calls it a sync license. And when they get that, they need to, the person, the licensor, I think I always mess up license. Me too. Who's licensor is the, is the company who want, who's the licensor, Marconi? The person who is holding the license right now. Okay, so the licensee, so Apple. Apple wants to use your song in a TV commercial at Christmas time. So Apple would be the licensee. So they need to go to the rights holder of, the, of that recording, and they need to go to the rights holder or rights holders of the underlying song, which in general would be a publisher. Or the way pop songs are today, you'll have maybe one recording company. It might be two if there is a sample in the song of another recording. On the publishing side, they might have to go to five, six, seven different publishers to get them all to give approval to this. And what they are approving is if Apple says, um, we're spending $100,000, we're paying $100,000 for this song, it needs to be very clear that there are two sides to the song and each side is either getting 100000 or each side is getting 50,000. 50, so that's the huge thing takeaway there is they're spending a hundred per side because we're talking sides. Is that per side or is that overall and each side gets the same? And there's a thing called most favored nations where uh, the rights holder for the recording gets the same amount as the rights holders for the publisher. So it might be Atlantic Records is getting 50,000 for the song, for the uh, recording, but, and if there are five publishers, each publisher is splitting that 50,000, they're each getting 10,000. So that's kind of, that's general how a sync goes. Is that a pretty good explanation? That's, that's, that's a yeah. terrific explanation to it. And it kind of dovetails into the next area, which I think is the one of the ones that's probably arguably the most, most confusing for artists and some end managers. And that is the aspect of, of publishing. Um, my general question is why don't artists necessarily understand the publishing side? It's easy to explain away the recording side of things or recording masters and all that. But when it comes to publishing, it just tends to kind of be a very, very confusing to, to artists and to managers. And then the secondary part of it is, and I'll, I'll split this into two, are PROs necessary? And why? And if so, why? It goes back to the basic idea, again, of a, there are two parts to a song. There's the recording and then there's the underlying song. So you have a, an independent artist who uploaded a song through DistroKid, and now it's on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, everywhere around the world. Apple, Amazon, those companies are then uh, collecting a royalty every time a song is streamed, or actually paying a royalty every song is, time a song is streamed. They're giving that money to DistroKid. That royalty is just the royalty for the sound recording. They are not collecting for the underlying stream. So when a song is streamed, there are actually three uh, three royalties being generated. There's the sound recording royalty. There's the public performance. Because even if you're alone and you uh, stream a song on Spotify and you're, you have it in your headphones, your earbuds, that's still considered a public performance. So if you're signed to ASCAP or BMI, 
they are going to see that that took place because Spotify has to uh, report to the performance rights organizations and they will collect a royalty on your behalf. It may be a portion of a portion of a portion of a portion of a penny, but there is still something there that is due to you. And then in addition to that, there is the mechanical license. Traditionally, when a CD was sold, there was a mechanical license, which uh, was at the statutory rate of 9.1 cent. It's been the same statutory rate for like 15 plus years now. But That's that correct. statutory rate went to the publisher, publishers, and songwriters. With a stream, you still have a mechanical royalty. It's just minuscule, but nobody's collecting that until they had the Modern, um, uh, Music Modernization Act of 2018. Now there's a, an organization called the MLC, Musical Licensing Collective, who will collect that mechanical royalty on behalf of songwriters, including independent songwriters, but basically any songwriter. So all the DSPs, digital service providers, which is Spotify, Apple, Amazon, they're all paying the mechanical royalties that are due to all these songwriters. They're giving that all that money to the MLC, who's holding on to it. And then for free, songwriters can go to the MLC, register for it, like I said, for free, upload all their tracks through, through spreadsheets uh, with all UPC, all the identifiers of your song. And then as it streams, you will quarterly get a payment from the MLC based upon how many streams you've gotten. But that's a very important part of the revenue stream for artists is we, again, it goes back to that idea of the, the sound recording is everything. I want to get signed to a label, sound, 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 but right. and about what was written. And that can be just as lucrative and just as important, especially once you get into uh, licensing your song for sync deals, uh, licensing your lyrics for a T-shirt or for a sneaker, things like that. So there are lots of opportunities and you need the performance rights organization because if your song is played on MTV, if it's played in a stadium, if it's played uh, on a commercial or, or anywhere publicly, that is revenue that is generated for you. I think it also uh, is so confusing it goes back to step one, I think, is being a musician. And a musician, when you go on stage, you perform. And that is a performance. So why are you telling me that when my record is played on the radio, it isn't a performance? I wasn't there. They played the record. And I think that's one of the hardest concepts for the musician to understand is that is a considered in this business that's or legally a performance as well, a public performance, uh, actually. And I think from, from that point on, the musician gets confused. And as soon as they're confused, they want somebody else to do it. You know, they're basically working more with the right side of their brain than the left sure. side. And then the second concept is, I think it happened even before these sampling um, clearance houses, is that a guy would, clear, uh, would do a uh, sample and then he'd get it cleared by uh, the record label. All right, we're cool. You know, that, that's it. No, you're not cool. Because there's an underlying thing there that right. you have to understand as well. So I think it is, as Dave is saying, and the way he explained it so well, it's, it's the most complicated area of the industry, no question. It's true. And let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between the PROs and sound exchange? So please. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up because uh, Esteban Marconi just brought up getting played on the radio. So it's interesting. Broadcast radio plays the public uh, performance rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, Global Music Rights, CSAC. Um, they do not pay for the performance of the song. They pay for the, for the underlying composition. They don't pay for the people who are who were actually on that recording. There's still a fight in Congress about should radio pay a, a royalty to the performers, to the rights holder of that recording. So that's an interesting thing where the songwriters uh, and publishers get lots of good money if your song gets played a lot on the radio. But there was another Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1996, I think, that created a, another governmental organization called Sound Exchange, which collects revenue for the sound recording, the, the, the rights holders of the sound recording. So when Z100 in New York plays a song over the air, uh, they're only paying a royalty to the uh, composition, to the publishers and songwriters. But when Z100 streams online, they're paying a royalty to the uh, performance rights organization and 
they're paying a royalty via sound exchange to the people who are on the recording, to the rights holder, which might be a label, and to the featured artist, and then to uh, make, maybe the union gets a percentage of that as well. So uh, uh, Sirius XM pays both the pros, performance rights organizations, for every song, and they pay sound exchange for the recording. So again, it goes back to that concept of two sides to a song. The sound recording, sometimes it's sound recording, people get paid, and we're talking public performance. Sometimes they don't. The underlying composition rights holders always get paid when it's some sort of public performance. And sound exchange comes in for the sound, for what you hear. And that's where you're talking about online radio, you're talking about Sirius XM, um, webcasting on, on cable, for example. So that's where sound exchange comes in. Most people don't know about sound exchange. They don't understand it. And that's another thing. Sign up for it for free and uh, they will collect that on your behalf as a sound recording copyright owner. We should add with that, and uh, it actually happened to me, is to understand the idea of interactive and active performances and that sound exchange only pays for radio-like performances that you don't mm -hmm. get, where you can't say play, um, let it be. Uh, you can't because that's interactive. And that's mm -hmm. what the Spotify and so on, you certainly can call up any song you want. It happened to me years ago when Concert Vault came out and mostly Concert Vault was um, a lot of Bill Graham's performances and so on at the Fillmore, but it was other things as well. And I got a call from the band I was in that said, uh, we're not getting any money from uh, this. It's on Concert Vault. There's a, I think there's a performance out of uh, Richmond, Virginia or something that were it's us. So I wrote and I asked Concert Vault why we, I wasn't, we weren't getting paid. And it was a performance you couldn't, it was not, I can't remember if it was interactive or not. It was one or the other, but they gave me a blanket answer. And then I had to dig and realize that whether it was interactive or inter, I can't, under, I can't remember now, but to understand why sound exchange and so on, we weren't getting paid. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's why it's important for people to understand and know about the book so they can really get a clearer understanding about all the differences between all the different revenue streams, you know, including sync and what we just what we just discussed. I mean, Pandora was one of those services that uh, sound exchange was collecting for because again, it, it was a quote unquote um, internet radio uh, aspect mm -hmm. of it. Um, I'm going to move on to, I'm going to try to put these three areas together. I might, uh, one may argue that it's kind of the sweet spot of the book, and that's data, marketing, and live performances. Um, starting with data. Data, as we talked about a, a little while ago, it is so important, you know, for the manager, for the artist. Uh, so many of the uh, of information is really, really readily available for free, even including uh, finding out how many streams you're getting on the various DSPs to, you know, finding out, uh, you know, some of these services that are provided, artists can sit there and find out like how many, how, if they're still selling CDs or if they're selling vinyl, they can get that information a lot easier than, than they could in the past. So, if you could just uh, touch upon data and how data leads into the marketing piece, because marketing um, is definitely, you, you spent literally two chapters on marketing and it's so thorough and uh, a pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's one, again, I talk about the sweet spot, data leads to marketing and then ultimately to live performance. Mm -hmm. Where at the end of the day, from a career perspective, um, if you're going to be a manager or an artist, ultimately, hopefully it leads to, you know, the revenue that you can generate and the, and just the lifestyle of, uh, of live performances. So please touch on data to start. What, what is great now is, is Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Amazon, even uh, other services like Deezer and Angami, which are other digital service providers. They all have these four artists platforms where you can dig in and see how many streams you got 24 hours ago, where they came from, not just in terms of a country or city, 
but also by a playlist where you, some sort of playlist, that kind of thing. Um, and as, much, as important it is it, as it is to see that on demand at the moment data that they provide to you, it's also recording the data and then being able to look at trends of all that data. And because a, a one day blip, you might get a surge of streams one day, but that you can't build a career off of a surge of streams on one day in Czechoslovakia. It could have been something weird. It could have been bots. It could have been just a one day thing, but you can't do it now do a tour of Czechoslovakia um, because I got 2000 streams on one day. So it's important to look at all that stuff and see where things are coming from. So you can start to determine, am I growing? Am I getting more followers? Am I getting more monthly listeners? Um, and um, am I, if I know where some streams are coming from, then when the marketing comes in, I can de start to de determine where do I decide to target my marketing? Because I can do marketing with Instagram stories, for example, or TikTok. I can choose where I want those ads to go. It can be geography, it can be over interests, it can be male, female, it can be the age of that person, it can be other interests they have, like other artists. Um, YouTube is really good with that too. So I can take all that information that I'm learning um, from what I perceive on my own by listening to the song, but also looking at data. And I can see, for example, with Instagram, I can see people like uh, other artists like you. Okay, so that means I can market toward people, toward human beings, toward fans of these other artists, because they like these other artists. They like my artists too. So now I know where to target that, that advertising, which is a form of marketing. And so um, all that is, is quickly, because we're almost running out of time, but those are some ways to take um, data that they give to us uh, and, and really look through. And like I said, the, the trends help you determine, am I bigger than I think I am, or I'm not as big as I think I am and figure out where do I tour? Can I tour? Will I sell any tickets? So those are some of the things. And, and that's data from the uh, Spotify, the whatever for artists. There's also Instagram gives you data, uh, Facebook, uh, they all give you different types of data. If you do spend money on digital marketing, digital advertising, you're getting data back as to how much does it cost per click, um, different regions, who is reacting to your data, all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it's there's there's a ton there available to you. And uh, our friend Paul Sinclair, who's the GM of Atlantic Records, a long time ago yeah. told us there's so much data now. It's a, a whole profession is now reading what in that data is important and what isn't important. Cause there's a lot of stuff you don't necessarily need to know about. And some of that just comes with time and just experience and, and figuring out what matters and what doesn't matter. Shazams are a big thing that Apple gives you because the number of Shazams you're getting while it's through an Apple owned subsidiary, which is Shazam, the Shazams give you an overview overall of reactions of people who, physically are interacting with your track, they're enough to actually tap on the phone, open up the Shazam app, hold it up to wherever that sound is coming from, and then that generates a Shazam. And now you can tell where that Shazam, what country it came from, what city it came from. So again, that's another way to, uh, the Apple Music for Artists gives you Shazam data, which reflects other things going on. So all, all great data, and there's a ton more, and we could talk an hour and a half about data. I know. I know. Well, listen, let me just – I know we're going to wrap this up, so I, I will just say this about the last few chapters in terms of marketing um, and live. Um, from, the, from the marketing piece, you lay out a very good um, aspect of generating revenue through touring, whether it's selling merch at your shows – ticket sales, how that breaks down in terms of guarantee versus a percentage of the door. Uh, there's an e-commerce piece to talk about your website for the artist and generating uh, revenue through selling directly to your fans uh, through that. Um, interestingly enough, as I flip through this really quick, I loved your analogy about building a house to social media marketing. I think that's definitely worth people taking a look at that because it's very, very good too. Um, your website as an as your online headquarters. Um, very important. Why is LinkedIn important? Is a good piece for uh, people that are not familiar with LinkedIn as artists and managers to look at how important 
uh, that is and uh, to do that. Um, again, going back to sync, touching on that, you also talked about an aspect of micro syncs, why they're important with the emergence of TikTok and other, other platforms that are utilizing uh, musical content for those uh, bits and stuff. You talk about playlisting, which you, you touched on. And um, you know what? I, I, I think that's it because I think our time's run out. Well, that's cool. We didn't get to talk about live much, but uh, we should thank uh, three people in particular who did help us with the live chapter because this live chapter is really full of good stuff. And that's uh, David 5-1 Norman and Mary Jo Kochka, who are both uh, leading tour managers, tour accountants in the industry. And Aaron Anderson, who helped us a lot with the merch section. So we got some really good up-to-date information about tours and tour management and all that. So that's a, a really beefed up section. I think this version of the book is, is a lot better than the last version that I worked on. And Dr. Stephen Marconi, you can determine if this is the best version of the book ever. I love this book. I'm very proud of this one. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, we did what has to be done. And that is when you do a music business uh, revision because they're asking for another edition. You really almost have to throw out the other the, the content of the previous editions because the industry changes so rapidly. You can keep the concepts of chapters and so on to make it easier to um, organize, but uh, you can't go out and change a couple of numbers and say, okay, the eighth edition is out. You have to start, and it happened to me almost every edition. I looked at it and I said, no, that you gotta do every chapter. You gotta do every chapter again, so. That's right. That's yeah, right. well, it's it's well it's well researched, well documented. It's absolutely up to date with where we are in the business today. So that is fantastic. It's it's again, and it's designed. For, I know it's managing your band, but this book is a good for aspiring music industry students. Uh, young managers, veteran managers, young artists, indie artists, or let's call it self-sufficient instead of instead of being a self-sufficient artist, as well as um, established artists. It's a worthwhile investment of people's money and time to get this book. Right. And we're practically giving it away. That's right. Because you buy 10, you get one free. Yeah. Starting now. Go. So Steve Corbin, thank you so much. Yes, excellent. Talking to us. Excellent as always. Yes, well, thank you. For, I must thank add, I'm thank very you for impressed. having me do this. So for everybody, thank you for listening to Music Biz 101 and more. At the end of every show, we do not say hello. That would be silly. Instead, at the end of every show, do you know what we say, Dr. Stephen Corbin? I, I do not know. There's no reason why you next should. Time. It, it, it's till next time, but in a different language we say. Adios. Adios. Corbin, would you like to say adios once? Just say once. Adios. That was so cute. Adorable. Thank you so much. Trying not to lie